0: Welcome to the Transformational Leadership Podcast. This is your host, Hannah Anam. My mission is to help you lead more effectively and be an agent of positive change in times of disruption. On this podcast, we interview practitioners and leadership experts and have coaching exercises that you can apply immediately to your work challenges. Together, we learn how to achieve success and create workplaces in a world that work better for all. So today we're in for a treat. I want to welcome Ravin Jesuthasan to our podcast. He's an author, a futurist, and managing director at Willis Towers Watson. He has collaborated extensively with the World Economic Forum, which is where we met originally, and is a regular presenter at its annual meeting in Davos. Ravin was named to the Thinkers 50 radar class of 2020. And he's also been recognized as one of the top 25 most influential consultants in the world by Consulting Magazine, one of the top eight future of work influencers by Tech News, and one of the top 100 HR influencers by HR Executive. Well, welcome to our podcast, Revan. I'm really excited to connect with you.
1: Thanks, Hannah. It's great to be on.
0: So one thing, Robin, that I'd like for us to start off with is tell us a little, something a little bit fun about you, because you have all of these accolades. So tell us a little bit <laughs> about what makes you human.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know if it makes me human, but maybe it's my kryptonite, I guess, is that I'm, I'm a little obsessive, if you will, maybe a little paranoid about staying up to speed and up to date and about as learning as much as I can. And so it feels like I'm always on the hamster wheel. I'm always sort of challenging myself to kind of think about my own reinvention. And, and if you look at my career, just over the many things I've done over the last, you know, gosh, 28 years or so, you know, I've done a whole variety of different things, many different things within one company, in fact, but it's always been about how do I learn and grow and do better and maybe a little too paranoid about that.
0: So many of us are uh, looking to reinvent ourselves for the future of work. And that's why I'm especially excited about talking to you today because you are the person who is, I know from our earlier conversation, you're spending 12, 14 hours a day really thinking about it and talking to companies about how do we reopen and design ourselves for a better future of work. So let's start with what are the trends that you're seeing that are shaping the future of work?
1: Yeah, um, let me sort of preface my comments, Hannah, by talking about how we're pivoting in terms of what we're solving for. So prior to this pandemic, I think there was almost a uniform focus on revenue growth and the pursuit of efficiency. The conversations that I'm having with many in the research that we're doing suggest that the new watchwords, if you will, For a world post-COVID are going to be those of resilience, flexibility, and agility. And and as organizations pursue um, these three new sort of outcomes versus the outcomes that they were pursuing before, it's calling for a sustainable reset of how organizations operate and how work is done. And and what that means is, is the following. I think one is more of a portfolio-based approach to work. So thinking about how do we diversify away risk and reduce uh, and increase the resilience of the enterprise by having the optimal combinations of automations, employees and jobs, gig talent, work done by third parties like outsourcers, et cetera. So we've kind of essentially like a financial portfolio, taken a, a brought about a portfolio-based uh, view of how work should be done. Hmm. I think the second issue is going to be one related to flexibility and ensuring that our business models have much less operating leverage in them. So we have much greater flexibility to pivot as potentially we have a, a spike in reinfection if we have another pandemic breakout. Just being flexible enough so that our business models can withstand the shocks that come about from some of these black swan events. And a key part of that flexibility is we've seen, we were talking about Proger redeploying 3,000 headquarters staff to the front lines. And we've seen this trend around internal marketplaces for work really become a a key part of HR the last several months um, leading up to the pandemic. And that's just accelerated now. Being able to deploy talent to work much more quickly and not having talent be continuously bound up in narrow jobs or narrow silos, I think is going to be essential to achieving flexibility. And then the third part of this is the point about agility, which um, I think is going to be brought about by an increase in decision making from the edges. So how do we shift more accountability, more innovation, more, um, more control, if you will, to those business leaders, managers, employees who are dealing with customers who are on the front lines as opposed to having it be bound up in a central organization? And how do we know we have a culture that supports consistent decision-making as that decision-making is increasingly done from the edges?
0: Mm. So what I'm hearing you say in terms of key trends, I'm hearing you say flexible, agile business models where you know people are able to be much more agile in terms of being redeployed to different kinds of roles inside of the organization and and i love Mm -hmm. this notion of a marketplace so you have an internal gig economy working inside of your organization and then you've got gig folks so you have these really fluid teams is what i'm hearing you say that come together to solve issues and solve new business model challenges and adapt the business model and then they disperse and You know, there's something new that's created. Does that sound like? Yeah,
1: I I think that's that's one example of that. I think for more and more organizations, it's going to be, how do I let go of this idea that I need someone in a job 100% of their time doing one thing, challenging myself to think about not just one job, but potentially a series of projects and how does talent and work flow in and out of various functions, various entities in a much more seamless fashion, because it allows you to tap the best person, the best skills possible for a body of work, versus necessarily someone who happens to be in a particular job.
0: Yeah, what a a fantastic way to think about work. And I imagine what's exciting to me about it is that then it puts a lot more accountability on the individual worker who's doing the job to be really clear about what their skill sets are, not their Mm -hmm. job description, right, which is sort of more fixed and, you know, fixed within an organizational structure that's not so flexible, but really their own skill sets, perhaps even their aspirations, the areas of growth that they want to, um, that they want to get into, the areas that they want to learn about. Uh, It seems like it could be a really exciting way to manage a career or perhaps even manage your work instead of even a career,
1: yeah, that's that's a really great point. Um, you know, two years ago in Davos, we presented a white paper that we wrote with the World Economic Forum called Skills as the Currency of the Labor Market. And it, it's a massive pivot, Hannah, if you think about it, because our legacy models are predicated on one degree matched to one person matched to one position or one job. And the job is the organizing construct on which companies are built, right? It's how jobs are organized into functions, into assembly lines, into processes, and then companies organized around this idea of a job. And increasingly, if you think about the way work is gonna happen in a more agile, flexible way, it's less of that one-to-one relationship between a degree, a person, and a position, to the many-to-many between a whole variety of different ways in which skills can be acquired Think micro de- um, nano degrees, think VR and AR experiences, match to skills, and skills match to work being done in a whole variety of different ways. It could be a job, it could be an assignment, it could be a gig, it could be a, a temporary project that someone takes on. And that really, I think, is going to be at the heart of the agile enterprise going forward. Yes. Is to figure out how do we get to those many-to-many relationships. Because they are much more efficient and flexible than the legacy one-to-one.
0: Hmm, beautiful. And so that brings up. So if I'm a leader inside of an organization, I have a lot of folks that whose work I'm only. They they the work that they do for me only represents perhaps a small percentage of the work that they do for other leaders inside of an organization, right? And so Mm -hmm. how do I motivate them? How do I energize them? How do I align them around priorities? And the same thing for putting myself in the shoes of a leader who's working for multiple bosses, right, Mm -hmm. inside of an organization or multiple project teams, if you will, because I don't even know how do we think about bosses. From that you know perspective. It's like there's no organizational structure that and hierarchy, right? That's like, okay. So it's almost like how consulting firms have project folks that are aligned, consultants aligned to different projects.
1: Yep. That's exactly right. And I think a consulting firm is probably a useful starting point, right? Because in any consulting firm, you've got people who, who take on multiple projects at the same time, potentially. Maybe they move from one to another. They're They might have a line manager who is really more of a career advisor, Mm. as opposed to being a manager in a traditional sense, because that person is actually being managed by the project leader. And so that ability that consulting firms have sort of long realized, the more flexible we can be in how we deploy talent, it deals with the inefficiencies of individuals with highly specialized skills sitting in one area that can't be deployed more broadly.
0: Mm. So what implications, Ravan, from your perspective, as folks that are listening to this podcast who are leaders inside of organizations, what implications, uh, what assumptions should they be letting go of? Um, that They're currently, they, you know, the mindset, a big mm-hmm. part of agility that I write about in my book is is just being able to shift your mindset and letting go and unlearning, you know, all the sort of ha- habitual ways that we think about work. What are the things that they should expressly be letting go of and unlearning.
1: Yeah, that's a really great, great point. I think some of the things that we need to unlearn are all of the behaviors of, that sort of lead into how we design organizations today, how we control the enterprise. Because control of talent is often, or control of the resources more broadly defined, is how an enterprise is often steered. And I think as we move beyond just narrow silos with narrow jobs and lots and lots of different layers and levels, I think thinking about how do we, in a more agile way, get talent and work to flow through the enterprise more seamlessly? How do we let go of this idea that I have to own the people? Um, Because that's the way we sort of count points, if you will. Mm -hmm. That's what drives my value. I think more and more organizations thinking about talent as an enterprise asset so we can deploy that talent more seamlessly. So I think the biggest challenge for leaders is to let go of the traditional mechanisms that kind of defined power within the enterprise. To think less about what I control to more and more about what's the impact I have on the organization more broadly or the impact on the employee experience or the customer experience more broadly.
0: Yes, I love that point that you just made, Robin, about what do I control? Because so many of us are used to getting work done through our sense of control, right? So mm-hmm. if you happen to report to me as a full-time employee, then I control your paycheck in some ways. I control your goals and priorities. And now all of a sudden, I have somebody working on my team over whom I have no, none of those traditional ways in which to control, right? And so right. now I have to become better at energizing them at influencing them and getting to know them and getting to know what motivates them right. uh, and what are their greatest skill sets and strengths so that I can bring that level of influence, right, to energizing them and, and helping them contribute and, and grow in, in, you know, if, if they happen to be working on my team.
1: Right. That's that's exactly right.
0: And that's exciting to me because now it, it means that me as a leader, it creates an, an enormous opportunity for me to grow who I am in terms of really caring for people and, and wanting to know who they are in terms of their strengths and 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 empowering them. So give some examples of organizations or leaders that are doing this well. Like, you know, who are the sort of bright shining lights? That we can turn to, to say these folks are doing it really, really well, and we can learn from them. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think a couple of organizations who have put many of these, some of these ideas into practice. I think I look at Unilever. I'm a big fan of Lena Nair, their C.H.R.O., and they have that HR function has been great at continuously experimenting, continuously pushing the boundaries of how talent can be deployed more seamlessly across the enterprise thinking about how they prepare for the future of work. I think another organization, a CEO I admire very much, is Satya Nadella at Microsoft, and how he leads in a way that, um, where his values and his presence are felt across an enterprise, regardless of whether he's there or not. You know, this idea of empowering and pushing decision-making from the edges and his, his book is a fa- fabulous and fascinating read, and it's got some great examples of his leadership principles in action. It's, it's hit refresh. Hit refresh, beautiful.
0: Yep. Yeah, hit refresh. Um, well, and, Satya Nadella is one of my very favorite Fortune 500 CEOs. I was so inspired when at this past World Economic Forum 2020, Microsoft announced their Pledge to be carbon negative by 2030. It was such a beautiful and bold move by a leader to act from a place of purpose and values, and not necessarily know how they were going to do that. I, I don't imagine that Microsoft have a you know a Excel spreadsheet that says here is exactly my project plan to get to uh, carbon negative by 2030. But to me, it's an inspiring example of a leader who is able to. Inspired through their conviction and through their <laughs> presence, as you said, Revin. Yeah. Beautiful. So, as we talk about leaders like Satya Nadella and Lena Nair, what are the qualities of leaders that you feel are going to be really important in terms of leading in the future of work?
1: Yeah, I think the ability to empower and influence and have your presence felt even when you're not there, you know, this, this notion of leadership from the edges, I think is really essential. I think the ability, as you talked about Hannah, to have a, a broad vision and be not so much focused on driving certainty, but providing clarity on the journey. You know, and I think this is a really important point because we're in a world that is so incredibly volatile and is changing dramatically. Certainty is kind of, you know, we all seek certainty, but the best leaders are the ones who can provide clarity. And I think that's what you see from leaders like Satya Nadella. I think this recognition that we have to be agile in how we get to these destinations that we're talking about, these big, hairy, audacious goals. And so how do I build an organization that is agile, where people let go of the traditional vestiges of power and are instead focused on the impact they can have on their colleagues, the organization, the customers, the environment, the community. Um, I think those are gonna be some of the attributes that we see of the leaders who are gonna be really successful as we come about this sustainable reset that is being called for you know, on the heels of the pandemic.
0: I love uh, that word that you're espousing, sustainable reset. And it seems to me that absent of the right goals and targets and revenue you know, projections that we have historically managed to. In this new world, what brings clarity is perhaps a sense of purpose, enduring values, right? Indeed. That what does this organization stand for? And who are we? Or who do we aspire to be for our customers? And who do we aspire to be? Sort of like this deeper sense of being, and meaning and purpose that can provide clarity rather than specific goals and metrics uh, that we all sort of are used to managing to. But in this environment, there's very little that we can turn to uh, that we can have certainty around. So one thing I'm curious about, Robin, is what is your sense of purpose? You know, as you do this work uh, for yourself, what is a guiding principle that you use I would say what underpins that
1: obsession that I start, started yes. off talking about or oh my paranoia is, I think, a, a desire to push forward the, you know, an ideal state of a more equitable world of work, one that is both responsive to the economic constraints and the economic demands, but one that is also as inclusive and as agile and flexible as possible to to maybe address some of the inequalities that we have perpetuated across the world for, for, for centuries, uh, if not longer.
0: Mm. Yeah, this sense of um, power in the hands of only a few rather than power distributed. And it's not so much what I imagine for me that something in what you know, what resonated for me in what you were saying is this notion of instead of thinking about power over, thinking about power to, you know, we have the power to to collectively create something better, whether it's a customer experience or whether it's a product that solves meaningful issues in our ecosystem or whether it's partnerships, right? With others so that we can create a more sustainable world or an ecosystem within which we are operating. Exactly. Yeah. So, so many people, Revan, are now in a place where they find themselves unemployed or furloughed. Mm-hmm. And it is a it's a really hard and, and sad situation for those families who are either living in a state of fear. And even those I imagine that aren't furloughed are probably what's in the back of their heads is how can I remain relevant? in this new world of work that we know is changing rapidly. Now, what yeah. advice do you have for all of us that are really starting to think about how do we reinvent ourselves?
1: You know, it's such an important question on so many levels, right? One of the biggest dichotomies I think we have been facing and we will, this pandemic has only heightened the fact that it's become even more obvious rather, is that, you know, for, for workers, there is this ongoing quest for certainty and stability, right? And and predictability in our lives. For, for companies, as you look at the forces that are coming into play, you know, as I said earlier, certainty is, is incredibly difficult, if not well-nigh impossible for an organization to provide. The best that an organization can provide is the promise of clarity and continued relevance to its workforce. So I can't promise you a job forever, but I can promise you that you will be relevant to the new world of work, and I think it's why the reskilling agenda that the World Economic Forum has been talking about is so absolutely essential. One of the organisations that I've been really intrigued by is, is Shell, and the fact that as this pandemic hit, as oil prices cratered, um, and Shell had to take out many billions in operating costs, they continued to invest in upskilling their talent, recognizing that you know when. When work does come back, when this talent needs to come back, the talent needs to be operating in a fundamentally different way than it, than it did prior to the pandemic. Heightened digital skills, heightened collaboration skills, etc. And that, to me, is is I think a really important part of the of this sort of this broader view of the impact of an organization. Right? It's not just about the economic impact today, but the longer term impact. So if it's, if it's the company's obligation to ensure that I'm staying relevant, it's my obligation to ensure that I'm availing myself of every one of those opportunities, um, that I have a sense of the skills I need to develop. I'm continuously investing my time, my resources in making myself relevant. I think organizations who can sort of support their workforces during a furloughed, through a reduction in force with the learning resources to ensure that that talent can in fact stay relevant, either for your business model or someone else's. Mm. I think that's going to be kind of a a critical imperative and it'll probably increase in importance as as we come out of this pandemic.
0: Yeah. And can you share, we were both at this World Economic uh, Forum Future of Work Summit last year, And we, at that point in November, we didn't realize that we would be having obviously this conversation and how much accelerated, right? The need for reskilling and upskilling could be. Can you share from a ecosystem perspective what the World Economic Forum is doing to help enable en masse at this this year, they had a manifesto for reskilling and Mm upskilling 1 billion people by 2030. That might have just been advanced by five years or more, right, in terms of the need. So can you share what organizations can be doing to participate in that reskilling and upskilling? Because it's obviously the job of each organization and each employee, but that there are some ways in which we collectively can be doing that within our industries or within you know, the public-private partnerships.
1: Absolutely. And, and the, the WEF has, as part of that commitment, it's convened a number of different councils. It's secured a number of commitments from many large employers in as it relates to the reskilling of that population. I think at the time of the pledge, they already had about 30%, I believe, commitments secured. I think that the challenge is going to be to ensure that it's not just the usual suspects, right? The sales forces, the Microsofts of this world, who have business models that allow them to sort of make those commitments and adhere to them during times like this, but everyone else. That there is, in fact, a very specific place for ensuring the continued relevance of the workforce, even as an organization might, might sort of be challenged economically. And, and I think that's probably going to be the bigger challenge. But the WEF has done an outstanding job, I think, of just mobilizing this, the broader global com- community And there are a number of other efforts as well in various countries around the world. I think Singapore in particular has done an outstanding job with its Skills Future initiative of mapping out, you know, emerging skills across industries and providing people with the resources to upskill and reskill. So, you know, there are some great examples, I think, around the world on this.
0: Beautiful. Thank you for this really pivotal and important dialogue at a time when it's very much needed. And I thank you for your hard work uh, with organizations to really do the research, to really influence around the edges, to help make a workforce uh, for us globally that is much more agile. I appreciate your work, Robin. Thanks for listening. This is your host, Hannah Anam. Please rate, comment, and share our podcasts with those you care about. Be the leader who helps others grow and thrive in times of disruption. You can visit our website at www.transformleaders.tv. There, you'll find other great tools to grow your leadership and be a force for good in these times. Until the next time, my friends.